Hey, everybody, and welcome to the weekly Facebook Live for the IFPA. Um, today is a special day because we have a guest on, uh, which I was trying to get on for a long time, and finally he's here, a busy, busy man. And I have to say, he's, he's not a trainer anymore, but he was for over 20 years. And in my eyes, he is one of the best. No, no, no. Let me correct myself. He is the best personal trainer that worked in the um, in the industry, and well, here he is. Phil Ernie was with me today. Welcome. How are you doing? Good. Good. It it could be better still. A slightly more interesting backdrop than I have. Yeah. <laughs> hopefully soon uh, I'll be there live as well. Yeah. Hopefully, yeah. I'll, I'll send some photos over. <laughs> <laughs> So you're, what would be the best thing to call you today? You're not a PT anymore. So you're an educator, a PT coach, business mentor? Yeah, PT coach is kind of my uh, social oh. handle. Uh, it was the closest thing I could think to describing what I do now. Uh, so, so with the academy, obviously a large part of that is coaching PTs. Uh, a lot of my narrative on social media is about coaching PTs, albeit it's been very quiet on social of late because of various projects that I've had going on. So, uh, yeah, I guess, I guess educator, I guess in many respects, uh, health and wellness sector in many respects. So, so I do a lot of stuff that's outside of the fitness industry now, uh, with respect to direct personal trainers. Uh, I speak to a lot of businesses, I speak to a lot of people who are, you know, physios or whatever it might be. So, so very much health and wellness sector. But yeah, I think you you pretty much got the description down. It's, it's quite broad, actually. So it, it got. Let me ask you about your history because, you know, it's the usual way of thinking in our industry. You see someone who's really successful, who's done it, who's made it in the world of fitness, but you don't see what's behind of it. So all the work, all the struggle for many, many, many years. What was your starting point in the fitness industry as well? Uh, I, well, if we go all the way back to school, school was, uh, I was very non-academic, should I say, uh, which is quite ironic because I spend most of my time writing now and, uh, and reading studies and science and blah, 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 but uh, very much non-academic. was very into uh, creative things, sport, and, and wanted to be a designer of all things and then then did a little bit of work experience didn't like it and then the other thing that i was decent at was sport so the natural path at that point was get into sport and understand you know try and figure out what was what because when i started personal training particularly in the where i was in the north of england uh personal training didn't really exist you know it was it was a handful of sort of celebrity personal trainers that you'd see on morning tv and uh, you'd see would crop up in the press now and again who were who were training celebrities for movie roles or whatever it might be. So it was uh, it was very much like that. And then I started as a fitness instructor, went to university, did a degree in sport and exercise science, came back, continued to be a fitness instructor for a short while, uh, insisted on the place that I was at that didn't do personal training at the time, insisted that they did personal training and threatened that I would leave if they didn't. Uh, and they let me do it. And then from there, I helped them launch personal training across their entire group. Uh, the, the the facility I worked for was part of a hotel chain. So it was actually a big gym in a hotel. 
and they had a membership base. I think, you know, I, I don't know whether they have them over where you are, but a lot of the hotels over here, they have, they have membership gyms attached to them. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was one of those scenarios. So, so I helped them set it up across the group. And then from that, uh, went various places, traveled a little bit, but, but continued to, to do personal training until I ended up back in London and had a, had a year or so off personal training and was more on the management side of gyms. Uh, I was brought in actually sort of headhunted to open and be part of the setting up the medical team and the personal training team of, uh, of an ex- exclusive kind of gym that was, that was meant to open and never actually did when they, they ran out of money. And, uh, so I was part of that team for a while, and then I went back to personal training at the third space in in London, which was at the time there was a it was a single site, but it was kind of the place to work at as a as a personal trainer, and had kind of the most prospects, and you know you got paid quite a, a, a decent wage. I was in the midst of moving to America uh, because I'd kind of I'd, I'd kind of topped out. Uh, the, the facility I was at wouldn't let me charge any more for my services. I had a whopping great waiting list of people. And basically was just salary capped. I couldn't earn any more money doing what I was doing. So at that time, I was kind of thinking outside the box and thinking, what else could I do? And uh, I'd started doing a few lectures and a few seminars here and there with businesses and doing some corporate stuff. But for the most part, it was about, you know, earning more money, doing what I was doing and doing what I loved. So so the US was was beckoning and I ended up being offered a job with uh, Ultimate Performance. Uh, as their, their their kind of director of education, and was able to personal train from their new facility in Mayfair in in the central London. So it was it was great for me. I got to charge whatever I wanted, so I could, you know, escalate all my rates, which was always the plan. I hadn't been able to do that for about three or four years, uh, so I made quite a dramatic jump with what I was charging. All my clients stayed with me, with the exception of one. Uh, who actually genuinely couldn't afford the new rates, and uh, and yeah, it went from there. So, so it was director of education at UP, then used their facility as 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 a personal training base, and went from there. Really, I, I grew my educational business in in and around that, and uh, the the advanced coaching academy came about, and it went from there. Really, so so in amongst that time, I've I've owned a fitness food restaurant. I've uh, dabbled with a few other uh, businesses and bits and pieces, clothing range, and uh, I've now just launched a, a supplement range, which is all about human performance. Which again, we might not get a chance to talk about today, but uh, yeah. So, so that's that's kind of it in a nutshell, really. It is. I remember the story you told me about how how you left third space and you know th- thought about moving to America. I believe it, it was a story where with Nick sitting down with Nick, who asked you to stay in, in at UP. Yeah, so we'd we'd been featured in an article in uh, Time Out magazine. So there was a feature on the best trainers in London, and me and Nick were actually the only two personal trainers. The rest were dance instructors and Pilates instructors and things like this. And they actually got us the wrong way around in many respects. They they put me down as, you know, the best person for composition and put Nick down for the best person for strength. And we actually specialized really in the other way around. But uh, I met Nick through that inadvertently. And then he came to me and said, look, we've got this new facility opening in Mayfair. Would you like to come and, and be one of the coaches and be our sort of director of education? So so it was a great opportunity. Uh, got on really well with Nick. He was a fellow Northern, Northern 
northerner and uh yeah it went from there really and and, and nick opened a, a lot of doors for me to do what i wanted to do which was which was wonderful and supported me throughout that so it was uh it was great yeah it was uh, quite some time ago what, was it in 2013 or something like that hey i you you might even know better than i did uh, i can't remember when when it was basically when the facility opened at up so it, it was a long while ago because i've been i've been I've been retired from personal training now a little, little over five years. So I've been there five years. So it's probably 10 years ago, uh, pretty much, I would imagine. So, so yeah, it was a while ago. And uh, I think we'd met uh, we'd met probably similar time, a little bit before yeah, then even. Like that. It was, I remember the first seminar that I was on. It was in Stoke-on-Trent, uh, November 2013. Yeah, so it would have just been shortly after that, I think. So, so it would have been uh yeah two that so it might have been 2011 2012 mm -hmm. uh it took me up because what the way that it worked at up is that anything inside the m25 which is kind of the the uh the outer circle of london was my uh stuff so it was my uh my own education which at the time was phil learning performance education and then anything inside the m25 we used to label as up education so ultimate performance education so it was uh yeah stoke would have been Probably about a year, two years after I'd, I'd started at UP, I think. So that would that would be about right timeline wise. So yeah, it, it caveman long training. Long way back. Yeah. One thing that I remember because it was about this. This was written. Was it end of 2014? And I believe it was Christmas Eve when I messaged you, and you told me I'm at my family's house, so everybody's having fun, and I'm writing this book. Because I promised that yeah. it will be out in January. I yeah, <laughs> I wasn't writing it. I was actually, I was actually getting it distributed. Oh so, so what had happened was, was I'd launched it as an ebook and uh, and a hardback paperback. Uh, and what had happened was the 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 there'd just been some issues with getting it distributed on time uh there was various people had kind of let me down last minute with uh the publishing the editing and various other bits and pieces so so some of that was a little bit rushed so i apologize there's a few errors actually in the book uh spelling and grammatical down to that last minute rush because the goal was to have it out before christmas and a lot of people had actually bought it for their partners uh another halves for for christmas so i was like look i can't let these people down so so I was actually sat at the dinner table at my sister's up in Edinburgh and I spent the entire day on Christmas Eve uh, sending out, manually sending out. So obviously part of this is you meant to automate that process. And I actually manually sent out, I think it was something like 400, 500 books uh, on that day to, to to various people. And it was literally, it was literally, you know, type in the email, write the email, attach the, the file, send do the same again and and if i recall my sister's internet wasn't the greatest so it was uh so yeah that was a that was a yeah it was it was an example of you know things that you have to do you know in the the world of kind of entrepreneurship and the the, the world of business is that is that at times there's there's things that don't go quite right and there's things where you, you have to you have to make sacrifices and that was that was one of them and and you know and i think in a way it was kind of it was nice for my family to witness that because they were like, look, you, you know, I'm, you know, it's quite a big deal writing your own book and getting it published and 
etc uh, etc et so it was kind of it was look i've got to do this because you know and and obviously you know my dad and my sister are probably sat back doing the maths on it whilst uh uh whilst i'm sending this four or five hundred books out and they got oh okay oh no i get it <laughs> and it was uh so so yeah it, it was nice for them to witness that and it was you know it was it was worth it in the end we got them all out and the various people that were waiting for them for christmas got them uh so it was yeah it was good do, do you know how many books you sold altogether? Uh, no. I would estimate, I would estimate it's about, well, I know that hardened paperbacks, I know that that for a, a number is about three and a half thousand, I think, mm. uh, hardback and paperbacks, uh, just simply because I know what's left uh, and how much I ordered it originally. Uh, I think ebooks have outsold that considerably. Uh, I think ebooks it's about four four and a half thousand I think at last count, but it could be it could be quite a few more than that. So so yeah, it was it, yeah it went well. I mean it was you know it was, certainly I'd do things differently if I did it again. Uh, you know it's probably due a rewrite to some degree, but I don't know whether my my head's in in doing a rewrite. Uh, I, I spoke to you just shortly before this call. I, I have a I have a book that I'm writing right now, which is part of the new project. Um, which again is human performance. It's all about human performance, but it's it's taking a slightly different take on it. It's looking at uh, behaviors, habits. It's looking at how do you optimize, you know, a, a twenty-four hour period of the day, and how do you how do you support that with habits, behaviors, nutrition, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's a it's kind of a broader spectrum of of information. But there's some some really cool stuff in there. Stuff that over the the, the last couple of decades I've learned, but didn't really sit in my first book. They didn't, they didn't, you know, they weren't the right content for that first book because the first book was just about nutrition. It was all about nutrition. It was trying to uh, not necessarily dumb down, but simplify a lot of complex things mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, about metabolism, about how it all works, about how to calculate things. And and again, even with that, there's things now I would change. Uh, there's different approaches. There's the evolution of the nutritional world. You know, you've got... You know, there's a higher percentage now, even in the short time between me starting writing the book and me finishing it now, there's been a, a big evolution in in the way that people acquire food. Uh, very few people cook. Uh, you know, that's starting to see a little bit of a comeback, particularly, you know, in the UK now, there's a lot of companies like Gusto uh, and those kind of things where they actually send you all the ingredients and you you cook it. It's almost like an empowerment thing. So there's people who've never cooked before who are looking at these instructions. So the challenge you have with something like a recipe book is that it's all well and good having all the details there, but you've then got to go out and buy all those bits and pieces, and undoubtedly there's going to be a bit of food waste and blah, blah, blah. So we've just – you know, I just cooked dinner tonight for for, for my family, and we had uh, – it, like it was like a rice and salmon bowl, but essentially all the elements to it all come in little – packages and and you don't waste anything so everything that you put in there is, is is there so it's quite nice for people who don't i mean i'm an avid cook my wife's an avid cook i know that you like to cook it's you know but we're a we're a small handful of our generation who who actually have those kind of skills so so now nutrition is very different in that you have to embrace kind of commercial the commercial side of food you have to understand that a lot of people buy things and put them in microwaves or put them in ovens or uh, you also have to accept that people are eating out a lot more than ever before. 
So, so nutritional approaches have changed and evolved and, and need to change them all. And obviously from a, a, a personal training perspective, personal trainers can't prescribe diets. You know, they're not legally able to do that. So, so, but we can assist with acquisition. We can assist with, you know, even the skill set. You know, I, I, I know coaches that have got, uh, you know, they've got chefs to come into their facilities and teach people how to do basics. I, I, teach, I was doing it on my own. Yeah. Teach. I was doing cooking classes. Yeah, no, I did uh, a couple of my when I was personal training towards the latter end of my career. There was a lot of clients that I had for a long, long time, and and there was odd ones. Those asked me, you know, can I teach them to cook? And and I remember one incident where you know I went around one of the houses with all my cooking tools and blah blah blah, and and sort of went and showed them how to prep a day's worth of food, and they were like, "This is brilliant." You know, I've never learned how to do this, and I didn't know how to do this, and didn't know how to do this, and this was somebody probably. Uh, probably ten years older than me, uh, so, you know, maybe even more. So, so that was another generation almost of of somebody who hadn't learned the skills of cooking. So, so the nutritional climate has changed a lot. So you've got to think a lot more about how, and obviously the way that people eat has has changed, not necessarily positively. Mm. Uh, you've got more food available than ever before, good stuff and bad stuff. But but unfortunately, when you when you give people more choice, the it all comes down to knowledge behind that choice. And ultimately, you know, palatable foods are always going to win in many respects. You know, it's, uh, I always say in the world of, you know, you look in the world of supplements, the, the world of supplements are all of, you know, people know very little about, for example, whey protein. You know, what's the differential between whey proteins? And ultimately, people pick the one they like the most. You know, it's got very little to do with anything else. It's, you know, I want the one that tastes the best. And you know the the evolution of protein bars. Protein bars now people buy the best tasting ones. There's no kind of uh, you know brand allegiance or anything. Like that. It's kind of you know whichever one's the best I'm going to buy. So so we've got to be very considerate of that. And ultimately, sending someone away to to make very bland, tasteless foods because they haven't got the skills to do anything otherwise is a it's a recipe for disaster in many respects. And it's a it's a recipe for giving people very weird and wonderful. Well, wonderful is maybe not the word, but sort of weird relationships with food, and and this stems from bodybuilders, you know. So so a lot of a lot of people, even myself, you know, early on in my career, it was like, you know, who's who's the best at dieting? Who's the best at getting people into really ridiculous shape? And and people would resonate towards bodybuilders, and you'd pick up bodybuilding magazines and you'd see what kind of diets they were following. You were like, oh, well, that must be the way to do it. So so and and I think you know, extreme personalities, which a lot of us are. You know, I would quite happily eat a bodybuilding diet back then without batting an eyelid. I'd eat, I'd eat plain steamed chicken and plain steamed whatever it might be, and and it was a means to an end. But ultimately, ultimately, it was uh, you know, there's a lot of a lot of people that won't do that, and certainly nowadays, people certainly won't do it. You know, well, you said this, I believe. You know, thinking that you have to earn your food or something. I mean, is it? It has to be painful. Yeah, that's the. I mean, that's the whole thing, right? Yeah. I mean, if something tastes good, it can't be good for you, which is nonsense. You know, which was which was really one of the biggest lies I think everybody got fed. This, this brings me back to March 2015. I remember there's a story behind it. It was 5 a.m. in the morning, so here in Slovenia, and I was training a client because my former partner couldn't get her to fill the muscles right and everything. So I did that session with her at 5 a.m. It was 4 a.m. for you. And I was messaging you right after this. It was 5 a.m. your time, 6 a.m. here. 
I told you, I just did the best personal training session in my life. <laughs> and I just used all the principles, everything that I got from you. And here's the message that you've sent to me back. It was your time, 505. So well, you got the message in front of you? Yeah. Really? It, is, it says. <laughs> Don't want to hear this. What we do is not about getting someone ripped, but changing people's lives. It's all about getting better in what we do, which is about learning and a willingness to learn. And I, this is in every presentation uh, since March 2015 that I'm using for personal trainers because it's, I think it's so profound. You know, it's, it really is. We were all in, in this kind of thinking or, or a thought process that we have to get everybody super lean, super ripped, shredded, uh, bikini-like, you know, shape and so on and so on. But it's not about that, actually. Being a personal trainer, it's it's way more, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's, you know, it, it, and again, this is something that I've, you know, I, I think from, you know, my own experience and, and probably from your own experience as well, right, is that, but I think it's it's like anything in life. You have to sit back and you have to you have to kind of look at it on a granular level, and you have to you have to accept certain things that you did. In, you know, you know, you do it throughout life, right? You know, you you think back to things you did when you were a kid, and then you you figure out why you did them. You know, and this was this was training for me. It was you know, I back then I just trained, I trained because I wanted to look better. And, and ultimately, me looking better made me feel better, made me perform better, made me function better, made me get more respect from my peers, made made me more confident. And and all of a sudden, it became this whole, you know, it became a psychological thing. Yeah. So it was this, you know, I could go somewhere and I'm in complete control of my outcome because I'm the one in control of the input. You know, I could put the effort in or I couldn't. You know, nobody else was dictating that. Nobody was saying, look, you can't. You know, there wasn't a matter of, and, and, and funnily enough, it was, it's a bit like, you know, school, right? So you go into school and there's certain things you're good at, certain things you're not. If you don't understand it and you don't know how to do it, so algebra, you know, you go in and you start doing algebra. You don't understand how to do it. You don't enjoy it. And and you will just sit there frustrated as hell because you can't do it. Now, the funny thing about weight training was, weight training was relatively simple, or I thought it was back then, because you'd go into a gym You'd look how people picked weights up and moved them around, and you'd copy them. And and you get into these machines, and you get into a chest press, and the chest press basically you could push it in whatever direction you wanted, but it was only going in one direction. Mm. And and you'd push it however you could. And, you know, I remember you know my, my shoulders all rounded, and 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 it was literally it was get as much weight on there and move it as many times as you can. And and it was just this this real. And and I made some horrendous mistakes, but. I also, I, I got in control of my nutrition and my diet and my weight because when I trained, I was better with my diet. When I was better with my diet, I trained better. So there was that concurrent thing. And it and, and it carries over into life is that all of those things that I applied to weight training, the mentality of it, the the discipline, the the, the commitment to it, the, all of these things, it it then, then transgressed into all these other elements of life, right? So business, business was the same. It was like, look, all I have to do is just work hard and I have to keep doing it. And that was the gym, right? It was this whole thing. And I remember somebody saying to me early on, and or I read it perhaps in one of the bodybuilding magazines, and, and it was always this thing of you go in the gym and then as you're in the gym, you kind of glance and you look at the mirror and you go in the change room, you take your top off and you see how you look after your training session. And I always remember someone saying, look, 
the way you look straight after your training session is going to be the way you look in a few months. So it was always a, you know, you're almost chasing this dangling carrot all the time. And I always remembered that. And I always remembered that with business. It was always, look, you just keep working. You just keep doing it and doing it and doing it and doing it and do it and until you get better at it. And as you get better at it, you normally get the rewards from it to some degree. They might not be as fast as you want them to be, but that's reality of it, right? And I think weight training is this humbling experience. And and this humbling experience you've then got to relay onto your clients in that, you know, we, we're forever talking about this thing, but it's weird because as an industry, all we want to do is shorten those timelines. We keep going, you know, we almost, I say we, I say a lot of the industry lies about those timelines. You know, you they, they go, right, you know, 10 weeks, 12 weeks, eight weeks, you do this in... Whereas I used to sit down with my clients and I'd look at them and I'd, I'd ask them what they did in a day and their behaviors and the habits and blah, blah, blah. And I was like this, this, this blunt northerner where I'd go, you're not going to be able to do that in 12 weeks. And I'd be like, look, that's going to take us. And I'd ballpark it. And then in my head, I'd probably add another quarter of that time on. So it was the same when I prepped people for bodybuilding shows. The bodybuilding shows was always this weird thing. People would start dieting 12 weeks out or 16 weeks out. But like, well, surely it should be based on your start point. So I'd often get a body, somebody who'd come in and go, look, I want to do this bodybuilding show. It's in 13 weeks. I'd look at this person and, and physically assess them and see what they're doing now and what, you know, where we could go. And, and I'd turn around to them and say, you're not, you're not doing that competition. You're going to do the next one because you're not going to be ready in time. And, and they'd be like, well, I don't understand that. 12 weeks, I've got 12 weeks. I said, yeah, but, but your start point isn't one that we can get you to where you need to be in 12 weeks. So it was always, a, you know, and you push it. So, so I always used to say, look, whatever you think it is, add another two or three weeks and you're probably not far off. And, and you know, going back to when I trained bodybuilders, you mounted people that would turn up at shows and they'd be like, oh, you know, I was robbed and I didn't do this and I didn't do that, blah, blah, blah. And, and, and really the vast majority of the time, they just didn't die out long enough. That was the problem. Wasn't so, anything else. It was just, look, they turned up on stage two to three weeks out. And I'm like, look, you're trying to peak a body that can't be peaked. You know, you're trying to get a body into this ridiculous shape that can't be got into this ridiculous shape because you're not ready. So so it was always this, and nobody would want to hear it. But then because of that, I think that was a large part of why I was successful in what I, what I did, is that I was always realistic with timelines. I was always realistic with my clients, and I would tell them honestly what they could achieve. And, and, you know, I had clients that, and going back on the quote that, that, that you mentioned before, is that, you know, you'd realize very quickly that if somebody wasn't willing to do all the components of what needed to be done to get ripped or get shredded or whatever they wanted to do, and everybody had this aspiration of being super lean, right? So most people come to you with this aspiration of being super lean. But in reality, they want to be super lean, but, but then you've got to ascertain what the other things they are that they want. So you're like, you want to be super lean. And I want to go out on a Friday night. Okay. And I want to eat out with my friend. Okay. And then I want to do this and I want to do this and I want to do this. And then in amongst that, you start to create this picture of what, what they can achieve physically. And occasionally you get someone who was just a genetic freak where you'd be like, right, you can do all that and you'll be fine. But the vast majority of people, you'd sort of go, right. In reality, for us to be able to achieve this, there's certain things in there that, that aren't going to be able to coexist. You can't do one with the other. You know, it's like people who want to earn a, you know, they want to earn a million pounds, but they don't want to do overtime. Like, <laughs> unfortunately, that that doesn't fit. You know, it's not a, it's not, it's not a cultural fit with the outcome, the business outcome that you want. It doesn't work. So, so unfortunately, there'd be times where you'd, you'd be like, look, I can get you so far, and what you'd get is you get people who then it would be coming up to summer. So, 
they were then prepared to give up a couple of these other things on this list where they'd be like, look, I, I can give that up for, an extra, for the next five or six weeks. They'd be like, okay, cool. So we can get you a little bit leaner for your holidays or whatever it might be. But then in reality, you're going to come back to where you were because those behaviors and those habits and those things that you want to do and want to have as part of your life, you know? So it, it all comes down to sacrifices, right? Is that what are you prepared to give to, to get what you want? And, and, you know, honing people's physiques is all about that. And being a good coach is about that, is that you've got to, you know, work with people's weaknesses, work with people's strengths. And I always say, you know, going back to working with professional athletes, first thing you do with a professional athlete is you, you find the weaknesses, you know. And the vast majority of athletes have just had somebody patting them on the back their entire career going, oh, you're really good at that. You're really good at this. I'm going to let you continue to do it. And I'd be like, you're really bad at that. That's what we're going to do. We're going to do the thing you're really bad at, which would be the hole that you've got in your performance, you know, whatever it might be. So you and find the weak point and you work on the weak point, right? And the truth is that with professional athletes, unless you're working in a club environment, you don't see them all year round. I mean, I, I got the athletes that are playing in the US and I coach them over here. So I yeah. get coach them, let's say, what, six, eight weeks a year? Yeah, yeah. So what can you do in eight weeks? It's <laughs> the weak spots and yeah, yeah. better them, and that's it. And 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 it, you'd be amazed. Uh, and and some cases you'd be, you know, I'd find things. You know, I worked with a, a guy who played in the NFL for for many years and and was very you know very renowned in the NFL. And and I pulled him up straight away and said, "Oh my God!" I said, "You're, you're so weak in that particular plane of movement." He goes, "Nobody's ever told me that." And I was I was astounded. I was like, "Wow, really?" I said, you know, and I, and I said, I'm surprised that this hasn't occurred, i.e. an injury that would be related to that kind of thing. I said, surprised that something that like that hasn't occurred. And, and, and you know, maybe that was the kiss, kiss of death. But, you know, six months later, he got the exact injury. I said that, you know, would transpire from having a weakness in that particular point. And he messaged me and he said, he said, you were right. He goes, he goes, and I worked with it with you for the short time I was with you. But then I went away and I didn't. Because everybody was telling me to do all this other stuff that I was great at, you know. So I continued to do it, and I was continued to be skillful and fast and all these different things. But I never worked on that weak point, which ultimately resulted in this injury. So it was, you know, it's it's the same thing whether we're talking about business, whether we're talking about so so the idea in a in a business is I'm going into a fitness business and I'm trying to look at the weak points, trying to find the so so a lot of those things that you learn as a coach and you learn as a coach and I learned as a coach, uh, you know, they they. they they work in so many different capacities. They work in business, they work in family life, they work in all those different things. And and I think that's a big thing. Sorry, I keep itching my nose, but I've got, I've got horrendous hair fever. And I'm, my nose feels like I've got ants crawling around inside of it, if I'm to be completely descriptive about that. So <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I keep itching my nose. Hair fever is terrible here at the moment. Let, let me ask you a question. So in the past, let's say 10 years, in the past 10 years, we've seen you know, social media uprising immensely yeah did it change the industry yep <laughs> the way i see it people tend to get you know instant success way more than they used to or they think that they can get it if they just you know be the next good thing on instagram youtube or whatever but what i what i think they they're missing is work ethics it was something that I've seen with you for many years now is you were 
you were always prepared to work your your ass off in order to get where you wanted. Yeah. But did social media change this and people? Uh, no, because I don't think that work ethic existed in the first place. <laughs> I, think what, I think what it's done, it's given people a, a ticket to, you know, it's the same as, hell, go back, go back years, right? You know, fat burners, right? Fat yeah. burners, fat burners are always going to be popular because because people want to do something with minimal effort. You know, not to say that, you know, something with a bit of caffeine in isn't going to help, but what ultimately happens, somebody somebody buys a fat burner for 50 or 60 pound, you know, I've used this analogy before, is that they buy a fat burner 50 or 60 pound, they, they improve their diet because they've just invested 50, 60 pound, they improve their diet and they improve their training and they lose fat. So they're like, oh my God, this is amazing. No, 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 you improved your training diet because you just spent 50 pound on something. So, so give this kind of false sense of what, what achieved that for me. And and social media, social media is just very, it's it's edited, it's very fake, it's very, you know, and I, I don't think we'll ever get around that. But it's this whole, you know, what's success and what are success metrics? You know, what are they? You know, and a metric for me as I as I got old, and a metric for you, and I know that you struggle with it, I struggle with it, is that is management of time, right? You know, yeah. having having a young family being able to manage that time effectively and efficiently so that you can actually do the things that I think so many people who are successful in business miss out on. And, and people talk about this work-life balance and, and, and it's almost like this mythological thing and people accept that it, it's never going to happen. And, you know, it's a bit like fitness, right? A lot of people accept that they're never going to get in the shape they want to get into, but that's just a list of priorities that they're, they're not prepared to, to tweak or change or whatever it might be. And I see the same with business is that, there's a lot of things in there that you've got to compromise and you've got to figure ways around and you've got to become more efficient at and 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 sometimes you have got to turn your phone off and sometimes you've got to turn your laptop off and and you know my my family fully understand that I run my own business which means that ultimately me doing my own business is is the thing that ultimately changes their quality of life you know because I'm kind of at the head of that and then you know my wife does her bit and, and, and but financially that that's you know that's largely my contribution. So so they understand that if I don't get the hours in and I don't get to do these things and I can't just disappear for a week and never pick my laptop up and never pick my phone up and and it's better than it was before because I've got a great team of people around me who who can pick up those things. But that's taken a lot of years to do that. And 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 you know that management aspect. So so with respect to the question about social media, I think social media has has almost created this thing where Success is a metric based around how many people you've got following you and how many people like your posts. But ultimately, that's not going to, it's not going to put food on the table, you know, and you've got to really go back to what's going to put food on the table. And and if having a huge following on social media puts food on the table, cool, carry on, you know, but, but for a lot of people, they're chasing a metric that doesn't change their world. You know, you've got personal trainers who work in gyms who are, who are spending more time trying to pick up a social media following and pick up a full diary. You know, they're spending more time on social media worried about this metric that doesn't change anything. You know, so they've got, you know, we've got 50,000 people following me on social media. But I work from a gym that has a catchment area of about five miles in any direction. And, and I'm doing nothing to fill my diary in that space. What I'm doing is I'm trying to look popular and be popular and blah blah blah. And I think this, you know, this goes back to back when you know when we were younger, where everybody wanted a sponsorship deal from a, a supplement company. Yeah. And and what would happen is is in the 
not in the early stages of social media, but as social media got gathered a bit of momentum, it was quite funny, really, because you get these people who would develop these audiences, these huge audiences, you know, 100,000 plus people. And they'd get a deal with the supplement company where a supplement company would give them 30 or 40 pounds, you know, uh, you know, net cost uh, of goods per month to use their entire audience, you know, and in, in the world of marketing and the world of audiences and what people will pay for, you know, it was like almost, you're a bit of a mug. You're a bit of an idiot because you know, what you're doing is you're getting a couple of tubs of protein every month to, 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 let another business tap into your audience that you've cultivated for probably five years and nurtured and talked to and discussed and got on a similar wavelength and blah, blah, blah. And, and all of a sudden you're like, you know, and it, 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 it's just quite funny to see it sometimes where you're like, look, and then you've got other people who are really taking advantage of that. I've got friends who've got quarter of a million people who follow them on social media, but, but they've, they've almost monetized that. And, and they know what they're talking about and they've they've had a product or a service or whatever it might be that revolved around that network, which is fantastic. You know, if you're an online coach and you've got this massive network, hey, brilliant, great work, as long as you're producing something. And and to me, it's a, a service that's high quality, but unfortunately, the industry is always going to be riddled with people that are, are giving out bad service, providing a bad service, uh, cookie cutter stuff that they're, they're capitalizing on. You know, I know a lot of celebrities on social media who were in the fitness world or have fell into the fitness world somehow who, you know, they leverage all the wrong stuff. And there's an ethical and a moral standpoint there that's, that's wrong, but ultimately people are monetizing it and people are stupid enough to buy it. So I don't think you're ever going to get around that. You know, there, there was something that we've talked about years ago where you said, what I'm trying to teach is not a cookie cutter, but the real thing about business. And this yeah. is something that I, you know, I got a feeling when, when I was in your seminars back in the years. And this is something that what made me choose the IFPA and work with the IFPA to get this done as well. Because what we noticed in, in the past years is there's a lot of bad coaches with good marketing skills. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. So what we're trying to do ultimately is to get good coaches, good marketing skills so that they can compete on the market. Yeah, but but it's, you know... I can help anybody sell anything if there is no moral and no ethical compass, it, 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 you know, cause it's not, it's not rocket science. It's, you know, I can, I can get you a bunch of clients that you're not going to service very well that, that will, when they're, when you, they've decided that you're not very good at what you do, they'll move on and then you'll tap into another bunch and then tap into another bunch. And, and there's so many programs that, that will do that. And Hey, you know, people are making money out of it. People are making good money out of it. But, but to me, it's, that's the sort of thing that I could never, I don't think I could ever do. I don't think I would ever feel comfortable doing. I don't think I'd ever know, want to know that ultimately I'm getting a load of really bad coaches to sell something a repeated number of times. You know, and this is the thing with online coaching, right? Because online coaching, there is no, there is no echo chamber like there is in personal training. So personal training, if I was a bad coach, people would know. You know, it's like it's like presenting in a seminar, right? So it's presenting in a seminar is very different to somebody commenting on social media and making out they're very intelligent about whatever it might be on social media. Being able to go to a room of hundreds of people, answer questions, you know, relay information, 
take anything that comes your way and be able to, you know, answer it in some respects or, or, or admit that you can't answer it. And, and you know, that's a true marker of somebody who knows their craft, knows their trade, knows their, has the education that, that surrounds all that. Whereas somebody on social media who will never, you know, you, and again, I'm, I'm not saying, you know, you should pick fights with people, so, but ultimately a lot of these people that are very vocal on social media, if you got into a discussion face-to-face with them, all of a sudden all these words and these the complex, whatever it might be, that, that came from them on a keyboard just disappear. And and they actually don't understand the craft. What they understand is how to Google things very quickly and how to, uh, you know, type a retort based around something they've found on, online. And, and it, you know, it's a very similar thing to this is that, you know, I could write a program tomorrow that I could distribute on social media and say it's it's the ultimate fat loss program and it would be a cookie cutter, but I'd probably make 20 or 30 grand out of it very comfortably, you know, and 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 that's that's what a lot of these kind of fitness celebrities have done is that they, they've created a program, you know, giving it some fancy name, you know, the, the whatever it might be program and, and just they sell it to millions of people because there's millions of people who are desperate to get in shape. You know, and and if you target at the right people, you will sell millions of them, and so be it. I, I guess in some respects, it's you know you put food on the table, you've got a family to feed, and blah blah blah. Do what you need to do. Uh, but again, there's an ethical, ethical and moral standpoint behind that 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 I'm not comfortable distributing and comfortable. You know, at the end of the day, there's a million ways to make money, but there's a there's a lot less ways to make money in an ethical fashion. Uh, so it, it's where do you stand? And 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 again, I get people that don't. You know, I I know people who who are up to no good with respect to how they make money and blah blah blah. And, and hey, up to them, their call. When you get more known in the industry, you get a lot of marking around as well on social media. How do you deal with this? Uh, in the early days, probably thick skin. Uh, later on, you know, have less. The problem is, I think, when when you've got someone who's got a, a decent, you know, sort of moral compass, I think the problem is they do take things to heart. Is that the problem is you've got, you've, you know, you've almost created this beast that doesn't, you know, so I would care what people thought, you know, and I still do. I still do. I'd be lying if I said I didn't. Mm. I'd care what people thought. But then as I got older and I got more understanding of it, I'd also understand that a lot of people are just out there trying to pick fights. You know, they want to pick a fight or they want to, but also then, as you get older as well, you start to become more precious of time. And I might look, if somebody's got that strong an opinion on something, and, and I get people who message me through different platforms. So they message me through Instagram, I block them, and then they message me through Facebook saying, oh, you blocked me because you didn't want to talk about it. I said, no, I blocked because I didn't want to get into a five-day discussion with you when you're clearly not going to change your standpoint and, and I'm clearly not going to change mine for whatever reason that might be. And and I, and I said, so there is no discussion, is there? There's a there's, there's an argument that you want to, and and you get people who would try to leverage almost your audience by proving you wrong. Mm. You know, it's a bit like uh, you know, you you want to beat the best player in the game because it proves a point. You know, and 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 it it was always this thing where you know I I used to when we used to go out, you know, in town there was you'd always be wary about the big guy that was with you. You know, and and whether the big guy could handle himself or whether he couldn't, but people would pick fights with the big guy because it would be to prove a point. You know, because somebody wanted to pick a fight with the big guy, 
Uh, and it, and it, typically the person picking the fight with the big guy would be the small guy. So the small guy want to beat the big guy up because it's proving a point. It's, you know, and it that's how social media is sometimes. And I think you've just got to, You've got to sometimes ride it out. Sometimes you've got to be a bit ruthless and go, look, I'm just going to block you. You know, I've got a block list a mile long on, on social media. So I'm like, look, I'm not interested in a discussion about this, you know? And this isn't because I feel that I'm right and they're wrong. You know, there's just various things that are worth discussing and various things that aren't. Uh, and, you know, I try not to put too much on social that's hugely controversial. I try to put things that are just helpful, helpful, useful, you know, sometimes I try and crack a joke that goes a bit wrong. Uh, sometimes I try and, you know, create some kind of witty. And and to be fair, there's been odd times where I've picked on the industry and, and you know, I kind of, I think when I do that, I'm, I'm not bored of writing bigger content because you, you almost get drawn into this field of social media where you're like, look, if I put something funny up, people love it. If I put something serious up that's helpful, People don't love it as much. And it's this, you know, and I, I get why people get drawn into it. You know, and I get why, you know, people who they were like, look, if I, you know, and I, I remember one of my colleagues made a joke about it the other day and they said, look, if I put if I put something serious on social media, you know, it gets X amount of likes, it gets X amount of shares, X amount of saves, X amount of, you know, whatever it might be. But then if I put a picture of my ass up, all of a sudden I've got this massive traction. And it's this sort of fine line between it that I think you've got to, you know, at the end of the day, it's, you know, not flaunt what you've got, but but leverage it. You know, I always say leverage what you've got. And for some people, they leverage, some people leverage things, uh, people leverage disabilities, you know, they use it as a tool to differentiate themselves from other people, which is fantastic. People leverage hairstyles. You know, they have, they have a hair that's a different color or a different style or whatever it might be. And this is society, right? Is that you've got to learn to leverage what, what you have and utilize what you have or what's been taken from you or whatever's been done. And, you know, and th there's all these different ways of going about it. And I always said, the, the, the chap I remember I did a consult with, I said, was the hair a strategic move? I said to him, he had this big, long hair, you know, like exquisite long hair. And I said, was it, a, was, it a, was it a strategic move? He goes, what do you mean strategic move? I goes, did you grow your hair because of the industry or did you, did you, was your hair already like that? And he goes, I've never thought of it like that. I said, yeah, but ultimately when you walk into a room, you want people to recognize you. People remember you straight away. You know, I have a, I have a good friend of mine who's got a, got a scar across his face, you know, uh, from, you know, something happened when he was a kid and he's got the scar right across his face. And he, he says it's been, he leverages the hell out of it because he goes to an event, people remember him, you know, in this, in this, you know, this mix of everybody. And remember people at school do it, you know, you get, you used to get the kids at school who color the hair. People color the hair because they want to stand out. People, people, you know, uh, tattoos, people used to get tattoos to stand out. You know, I think people get tattoos for very different reasons now, but back when I was a kid, it was like, you know, in a small town, people used to get these tribal tattoos because they wanted to stand out, you know, and, and whereas, you know, now people, so many people, I think, with have tattoos is that, you know, you have tattoos to tell a story. You have tattoos to to signify something or, or whatever it might be. But I still think there are subcultures where people just have them because they want to stand out. And people have now started tattooing their faces and things like this. And because, again, they want to stand out. And there's nothing wrong with that, you know. But, but it, 
stand out and leverage it. Make use of it because because it does make you stand out. It does make you different. It does make those things. And it's things like your stories. You know, I had a chat with a, a, a friend of mine the other day who was he's ex-military, and and he doesn't like telling the story of him being ex-military. He's like because everybody's done that. He said everybody's done it. Everybody tells everybody they're in the forces and they're in the special forces and blah, blah, blah. He goes, I don't like to do that because everybody's done it. I said, everybody's done it. I said, no. I said, just in your world, it seems like everybody does it because you follow everybody in the special forces. Whereas the rest of the world, straight away, you tick this box of, ah, respect. So straight away, you've got respect. It's like people who do martial arts, right? You know, you've got a martial arts background. Tell people about it. Tell people about your upbringing. Tell people about your background. Tell people about that the, the shortfalls and the hardness and the, the hardship you've gone through in your life because that's part of the story. And I think that's it means you've got this genuine story that backs this new narrative up. You know, I was massively overweight as a child, you know, and, and, and I'll tell people about that. I'll tell people about that journey that I went on from being as I was, this insecure, you know, self-conscious, you know, probably quite disturbed child who, uh, you know, spent a lot of, their, a lot of their childhood crying, spent a lot of their childhood, you know, uh, you know, unsure of who they were and how they identify and, you know, trying to be different, you know, trying to be different wasn't a goal for me because I was different and I got picked on like shit because of, I was different. So there was never this point where I'm like, look, I want to draw attention to myself. Whereas other people blend in. So they, do things to try and make themselves stand out. And social media is very much like that. It's, you know, you've got to kind of find, and, and people talk about it in businesses, you've got to find a niche. Like you don't have to find the niche. You just have to find a way of standing out. And largely in our industry, and again, for you know the people that are listening, in our industry, providing an incredible personal training service makes you stand out because there's not that many people doing it. You know, and this is the way I see it. I, I see it as look, if I can nurture people and coach people and train people and let uh, facilitate people providing an excellent personal training service, they stand out. Then there's the other elements of business, you know. So, so we do, you know, uh, we do a lot of branding stuff within within the, the the academy now, and part of that is to help businesses stand out. Is that because I know notoriously in the world of fitness. The branding of fitness industries and businesses is terrible. It's like clip art mania. It's like everybody's got a picture of somebody, you know, a silhouette of somebody holding a dumbbell. And I might, you know, and and you know, we deal with, you know, because of the other side of the business, uh, we deal with, hell, what are we up to now? I think we're close to about 12,000 businesses. So 12,000, I've seen inadvertently 12,000 fitness logos and there's probably about 3,000 of them look pretty much the same, you know, and that's not going to make your business stand out. And the quality of what you deliver isn't going to make your business stand out. And I think my background with sort of design and I wanted to be a graphic designer, I look at stuff like that and I go, wow, that doesn't look very impressive. So for me, you know, getting on a video, it's important for me that the videos, you know, in the same with you, right? The setup looks professional. You know, if this was me on a, on, on my phone, you know, and you could barely hear me and there wasn't a, you know, and there was nothing about it, you know, and and I always say to coaches, look, when you work in that commercial facility and people say, wear your uniform, wear your uniform. 
because people then can identify your name badges. I, you probably heard me talk about this before. Name badges. Name badges are a way for somebody to be able to address you by first name. That's a very personal thing. And that, you know, if I'm in a restaurant and somebody's got a name badge on, I will address them by their first name. And you'd be amazed how that changes the level of service they give you and deliver you. It's like leaving a tip. If you intend going back to a place, leave a tip. If you had good service, leave a tip. If you, you know, and even in a, a non-tipping culture, which the UK is very much a non-tipping culture, because you then stand out, and people would remember you. And it was, this was taught to me by a good friend of mine. We went to this bar and he gave the barman this insane tip. And I was like, I don't get why you did that. He goes, yeah, because that's the first, that's the first drink we've had tonight. I said, and it's re and he said, it's really busy in the bar. And I'll tell you what, every time we go to the bar now, he's going to serve us first. And that's exactly what happened. And I'll tell you what, it, what that did, it changed our experience. So what turned into a night where we could have spent a large proportion of our night stood at a bar waiting to be served, we didn't have that negative side of that experience. And what he tipped him in the onset, I'd have paid him 10 times over to get that same experience. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, so straight away, he changed the whole dynamic of that experience by, you know, the first drink we ordered, he was like, you keep the change. And it was, it was a good amount. I was like, really? He goes, yeah, and we'll do the same next time and the next, same next time. And it just added a little bit to your bill at the end of the night. But but ultimately, that accumulated in, in he had a great night. We had a great night. We didn't queue once. And to be fair, when it got to the end of the night, he started giving us loads of free drinks. <laughs> so so payback. there was payback, you know, because and there was this whole lesson that I learned from that. And it was just weird. It was it was sort of I was like, really? Wow. I said, I've been going out for years. I've never thought about that. And it was, and, and, you know, and that's this thing about like coaching is that give people a, an experience they want to talk about and they remember, you know, and that was always my thing. Give people a memorable experience and give them information that they go away and go, wow, I never knew that. You know, I'm giving this, I'm giving a, an educational seminar on Friday. And, and this is to, you know, uh, around the human performance uh, brand that we've just launched. And there's information in there that people are going to be like, Oh my God, all these years, nobody's ever told me that. And I know that. And I know there's about eight or nine pieces of information I'm excited to give people where I'm reinforcing, I'm telling people about various things that they just didn't know before about stuff like caffeine, right? People get caffeine, but they don't understand it. They don't understand its impact on receptors. They don't understand its half-life. They don't understand how it would impact someone's sleep, how it would impact someone's day and why it does that. So then... You know, I'm going to go through all that and explain to them this is how it works. So therefore, when you're advising your clients about when they should consume caffeine, you're more you're more educated, you're more notified about it, and you understand more about it. So therefore, you can give them good suggestions, which might then in turn improve their sleep. You improve their sleep, it improves their training, improves their training, improves their output. All of a sudden, you become a really valuable asset to them. And and you know, I used to manage, and I talked about this with the nutritional environment. Manage your client's nutritional environment. I used to, I, I had clients I hired chefs for. I had clients who used to phone the hotels and get their, 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 them to make the food that they needed. Uh, I used to organize meal prep when meal prep wasn't a thing. Uh, I used to speak to one, one of my clients had a driver and I used to tell the driver where to go. So he would give me his route and I'd tell him where to go to pick up their food for the day. And he used to go and pick it up. 
and and you know and i managed their environment and because of it i didn't charge extra for it it was just integrated into a very very expensive personal training price you know so my my hourly rate wasn't a reflection of my hourly rate and I, my, my personal training rate was a reflection of the level of service that you would get and this is what coaches forget you're not getting paid for your time you're getting paid for your expertise and the service you deliver outside of that true which brings me back can you remember how long did i ask you to be your client i can't remember it was a while it was a year it was a year was it a year yeah when, when, when we're talking about level of service this is from my experience i, I used to work with uh two other online coaches back then both from the bodybuilding world which couldn't understand that i run a business that I have a family that I'm still a part of. So it was an awful experience. What we've changed, and it was, um, I, I can tell you still, I, I have a very good memory. Yasmina doesn't like it necessarily. But still, yeah. I can tell you exactly where we were sitting when you agreed for me to become your client. It was Byron in Covent Garden it was October 2014, and it was right after a seminar, a business seminar that you gave in London, and you asked us to join you, well, at dinner. So, right. Well, before we carry on here, I just want to I just want to state the reason I didn't take you on as a client is because it was all to do with bandwidth, and it was always all, all to do with the fact that I didn't think, and to be fair, I still don't think I delivered the best service I could have delivered. Well, it was the best service for me. But but I, I I still don't think it was the best service I could have delivered because ultimately you coerced me into taking you on when really I shouldn't. So this happened a lot throughout my career where I turn a lot of people down because I just didn't have the scope to look after them in the way. And this is why later on in my career, it, it, later on later on in my career, is that I wouldn't take on physique competitors because it was hugely time. Uh, it was a, a time-draining exercise, right? So, so you know, I didn't not take you on because I didn't want to. It was just so, so the listeners know. I, I, I didn't take you on because I didn't have the bandwidth. You, you told me, look, I'm not doing this because I know I cannot deliver quality service. Yeah. I understood it. It was completely clear, but still, I was persistent. So I asked you, if you take me on, I'll be traveling one time a month. So one day a month to London to train with you. Yeah. And you said yes. And I was. I, I, I don't know if I told you how much I spent to be there on this specific day. Oh, hey, look, look, I'm not I'm not stupid. I can calculate it. Yeah. <laughs> it was, but you know what? It was all worth it. I would do it again. Good. I would still do it again. And this this is the reason why, why I wanted to talk about it is people don't actually know how much our clients are prepared to spend on us. Oh, massively. I mean, I, I used to have, uh, Adam used to travel down from Stoke. You know, and Stoke's a, like a two and a half hour train ride, I think. Yes. He used to do two and a half hours here, two and a half hours back. And he literally used to get off the train, come train, get back on the train and go back. Yeah. And I'm like, and I actually, there was, a, there was often I would say to him, I'd say, do you really want to carry on doing this? I said, I'm sure I can sort of something where you, you know, I can train you remotely or whatever. And it, and it got to a point where I actually felt quite sorry for him, but I, I felt sorry for him when he didn't want to feel sorry for you. He quite enjoyed it. He, you know, he loved the fact that he got on the train, he came and traveled and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and, and 
yeah, and it was, I always remember there was a physio I used to work with quite closely and he used to, no word of a lie. So this is central London, right? So he, he had the most ridiculous work ethic, right? Most ridiculous. I'm, I've told you about him before. I've told you about Kevin before. And I would go, I would get an appointment with him, an appointment that didn't exist. So he would look after me. So he'd see me when he didn't have appointments. He'd fit me in somewhere. And, you know, and I, I had various injuries through powerlifting and what have you, but he was the best physio undoubtedly in the country and still still is. And I'd go and sit in the waiting room of his clinic at about one o'clock in the morning and wait for an appointment. And it would literally be open-ended. It could be, I could be sat there for an hour, an hour and a half and things like this. And sat next to me would be a Man United player who'd got in the car at the end of training on a Thursday night or a Wednesday, Tuesday night and driven all the way from Manchester, all the way to London for an appointment that would probably take about 20 minutes with this physio. Then we'd get back in the car, drive all the way back to Manchester and do that again and again and again, repeatedly in the week. Insane. You know, and, it, and they couldn't go on trains. You know, they were, they were Premier League footballers. They had to go in cars and they wouldn't have a driver. So they're getting cars, but then it would be literally, there'd be like a Man United player here. There'd be a, there'd be a celebrity actor or actress here. And there'd be, and, and it would literally just be littered with this who's who's of, of you know, uh, one night I was sat there, GSP sat there, you know, George St. Pierre sat there, uh, you know, waiting. And he's actually came off a flight from Dubai and they've stopped, stopped off in London and got the, they've got the train or the car or whatever it was to London to go and see the physio. And he was in between a UFC fight and he was on, you know, he was en route. And, and yeah, and it was just, it was just bizarre. But, but I always remember that, that there was all these people that were hugely willing to go all that way to get this service. And it wasn't that, you know, and obviously physio, it's not, you're going in there and he's inflicting pain on you for 20 or 30 minutes. <laughs> and it wasn't this, and it, and it was bizarre because it wasn't this, this bells and whistles kind of service that I was trying to offer as a personal trainer. It was literally, it was, he was so good at his job is that people would travel that far to do it. And it was nuts. Yeah. Anyways, tangent. <laughs> 1 a.m. in the morning. Oh, yeah. The amount of times that I'd be there, you know, and, and the security guard, the, this was the gym I used to work at. And the security guard used to let people in through the, there was like a, a private door up the back and they actually had just the way it worked out, but they could cordon off the whole rest of the gym. And there was just literally a staircase that would come up to where they were. And they used to use one of the exits and it was all legitimate. It was all, he was allowed to be doing it. You know, it wasn't like, you know, a backhander here and there, but they, they, they had 24 hour security. So the security guard would welcome these people and let them in. And, and it was all quite, I think it all worked out quite well because obviously at that time in the morning, they could sort of sneak in with nobody seeing them. And I mean, we were talking like world-class footballers, athletes, celebrities, and, and they'd just be sat there in this waiting room waiting. In, and their appointment would be at midnight, but they wouldn't see him until quarter past one. And they'd just happily sit there, you know, quite content, you know, on their phones or whatever they were doing, reading a book. And, you know, it was bizarre to see. But but that's a, a that's that's talking about somebody who knew their craft and had an incredible level of service. I know that we could go on like this forever. It's over over an hour, and I promised you to be 30 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I, I just get carried away with you. Which hey, is, let's, let's let's do it again. You know, let's do it again sometime sure. as long as sure. you want to take value from it. Our, our season ends uh, next week, Tuesday, so we'll 
we'll be having a break uh, during the summer so we'll be back on, in september and i'll be happy to host you again here sure. thank you so much the last thing the last thing what would be one thing that you would say to future personal trainers what to look out for to look out for uh be very wary who your clients are be very wary who your clients are where they reside how you're going to service them and obviously as your career progresses that's going to change so if you're going face to face your audience is in that catchment area remember that if you're going online your audience is a bigger catchment area but you still need to almost refine it in a little little way be very clear who you are and what you deliver but get good at your craft you know practice it and get great at being a coach and and uh again going back to there was a the big nsca conference so it's the is uh over in the us they 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 spoke to all the, the top level coaches and they said look what what's the one skill that you'd you'd like to learn to make you a better coach and it was always it always came back to communication so get good at communicating You'll learn how to communicate with your clients. I always remember uh, early on in my career, I did a, a course where the guy made us, it was my, actually my fitness instructor course, and the guy made us coach a bench press without speaking and also bench press without doing anything. And I always remember that, it, and I, I took quite a lot away from that. It was like, look, be able to do it without a line of communication. So if you can coach it just by showing people and also coach it just verbalizing it without showing people you know you can almost ultimately become an online coach right true so yeah but learn that skill on the gym floor thank you for that um nice one phil ernie ladies and gentlemen so be sure you follow him on instagram facebook and all the other stuff that you get on um and he'll be back for sure thank you phil yeah. thank you for having me See you soon, guys. Next week, do not forget, it's the last time. So we'll see you Tuesday at 2 p.m. Uh, Tampa time. See you there. Bye-bye.